we ask for this morning in Christ's name. We pray. Amen. Amen. Spiritual drift. Spiritual drift. That's exactly what had happened to Jesus' contemporaries. They had spiritually drifted so far and for so long that loving God, honestly relating to God, had lost any real meaning. So when Jesus came calling them back, it was as if he was speaking a foreign language. And so Jesus issues this literally a frontal attack to the thing that had replaced loving God. Religion. Tradition. And that's why they opposed him so violently. You know, Judaism, the context of Jesus' world, Judaism represented the very best of religion. In some ways, the things that Jesus says here, though, they could be said to Hindus or Muslims or Buddhists or even Protestant and Catholic Christians who have made rule-keeping supreme, who have made the correct answers supreme, rather than knowing and rather than loving a real God, a real personal God. So in John 8, we find ourselves in the middle of this debate between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. Now, the debate takes place at the temple. We're still there. The temple was the spiritual. It was the political center of Jerusalem. And for the second time in a span of just a few chapters, Jesus challenges superficial belief. And this time he lays out a condition. If you are to be my disciples, my word must be living and growing inside of you. But that was the problem. That was the problem. For many of the individuals in this audience, powerful men, they were powerful men, and they ruled the nation politically. They set the tone spiritually. They had no interest in God beyond maintaining the status quo. They kept the true person of God in their back pocket and put honest relating to him on cruise control. They had all they wanted. They had power, they had position, and they had vast wealth. And they danced a dangerous dance with Rome in exchange for keeping peace. Roman legions protected their vast interests. So into this narrative, into their story, Jesus has the audacity to suggest they were slaves. Not slaves to another power, but spiritual slaves. Enslaved by evil desires, enslaved by runaway ambition. And this set off a literal firestorm. Let's pick it up in verse 40. Look in verse 40. If you're following along in our Bible, it's page 895. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 39. You remember, if you were here last week, they were debating about their heritage and about their being offsprings of Abraham. And in verse 39, let's pick it up right there. They, those in the audience, answered Jesus saying, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, 
a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. little side note on that particular verse. It's likely what this is referring to is that uh, the story of how Jesus was born, being born to the Virgin Mary, was, was circulated in this time, in this era. This could be a, a, a little dig about how Christ came to be, accusing him of being born of sexual morality. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan? It's a racial insult. And have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. But I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. He is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as the prophets did. As did the prophets, yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Stop right there from the text. Now this is not language you're used to from Jesus. It's stunning. It's harsh. And what can he possibly mean by saying the Jews here in this context are not children of God, but rather children of Satan? It is assumed today, short of doing uh, something, you know, uh, unless you do something dreadful, it's assumed that every person is a child of God. Yet if Jesus' words are understood literally, that would lay that assumption to be false. There's an intense back and forth. Jesus says, you rejected my word. The Jews claim they have Abraham and are morally superior. Jesus says, you are children of Satan. They claim he is demon-possessed. Jesus claims the power to overcome death. The Jews are distressed. He's asserting to be greater than Abraham. In utter contempt and exasperation, they demand in verse 53, who in the world are you? What are you claiming to be? Now, Mike looked at this passage two weeks ago 
You can read the rest of the passage. Let me give you the short notes. Jesus answers by saying that he existed before Abraham. And he uses a self-descriptive title reserved for God alone. Driven to a point of uncontrollable rage, convinced he was guilty of blasphemy, without any trial or due process, they pick up stones. This crowd, this, this enraged mob, hysterical at this moment, picks up stones to kill him. But Jesus quietly slips away. His time has not yet come. Now, let me just answer this question sort of before we get move further. Why such harsh language? Why such stunning language? And again, if we think about the context of a drift, a drift that has gone on for hundreds of years, what is Jesus trying to do? He's trying to awaken them. He's trying to give them a sense of their true condition before God in order to wake them up from their sleep. Now, in the midst of this back and forth, Jesus draws out a distinction. I can find five of them. Five distinctions, five differences between Jesus and between some in his audience. Let's roll through these. Five differences. Here's the first one. Look at verse 46. Jesus says, which of you can convict me of sin? Now, what's the difference here? The difference relates to personal righteousness. Jesus Christ could not be convinced or convicted of any sin, and the leadership at this point are driven by hatred, and they're driven by an uncontrollable rage. So we see a distinction in terms of their personal righteousness. Secondly, in verse 49, Jesus says, I honor my Father, but you dishonor me. The Jewish leadership, they didn't honor God. What they really honored was their ethnic heritage. And they placed that ethnic heritage in a supreme position over God. Now listen, before you just toss this off too quickly, I want you to realize that we can be guilty of the same thing. We can put our American citizenship and, and prize that more supremely than we do God. For example, there are many issues in our nation. Issues like immigration. Issues like the status of refugees. Views of our traditional enemies. Issues like this challenge us to think first as believers. And to remember that our commitment our commitment as believers is to all nations, not just ours. Now, I'm not suggesting there are easy answers on immigration or refugee status. I'm only saying that we can be guilty of the same thing. We can place our American citizenship over our heavenly citizenship and our commitment to follow Jesus. Thirdly, here's another difference. It relates to reputation. 
Jesus says in verse 50, I do not seek my own glory. And remember what we learned back in John 5.44? What about the Jewish leadership? They were more concerned for their own reputation, their own glory. But they didn't really care about the love of God. They didn't really care what God thought of them. They were simply consumed by what their peers thought of them. Number four, there's a difference in relational connectedness. Jesus says in verse 55 and verse 38, essentially, but you have not known him, I know him. You know correct answers. <laughs> you keep rules, but you don't know him. You don't have a personal relationship, a personal connectedness to him. The Jewish leadership, their relating to God never moved into a personal realm. It always stayed academic. It always stayed cosmetic. It always stayed sterile. There was no real desire for God. No real desire to be with him. And finally, number five, a similar difference, was a response to God's word. In verse 55, Jesus said very simply, I keep his word. I keep his word. In verses 43, 45, and 47, the Jewish leadership rejected and resisted. When the word confronted their ultimate commitments, they resisted and they rejected. So, these differences help us answer a question that I'd like to come to that this whole message is driving at is this. How can we prevent in our lives a slow drift away from God? Because, friends, don't think that we're not vulnerable to that. I mean, these, were, these Jews had the, I mean, this was the best religion. They had the best access to God and to the Scriptures, and they drifted. Don't think for a moment that you and I are not vulnerable to drifting. And so the question for us this morning is, how can we prevent that drift? How can we prevent it? And what I want to say here is that Jesus Christ, in his humanity, in his being fully man, is an example to us of how we can love God and how we can relate to the Father. And it corresponds to these, these changes, or to these differences, I mean. Okay? So, here's five ways that we can prevent drift in our life. And this is going to be kind of sort of general, top shelf. Number one, by growing in personal righteousness. Now, you and I cannot be perfect like Jesus. If I said, which of you can convict me of sin, there'd be a quick line being made. So we can't do that. But if you're not growing in personal righteousness, then maybe you're on a slow drift right now. And personal righteousness for us as members of the kingdom, serving the king, righteousness Jesus spells out for us in Matthew 5 through Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount. The longest single sermon Jesus gave. And what did Jesus say? If we are growing in righteousness, we will be less vengeful. We will be less angry. We will be less lustful. We will keep our promises more. We'll keep our word more. We will be genuinely moved by the pain of others if we're growing 
impersonal. Our hearts won't be calloused. We'll be more consumed with wanting to please God and more interested in His opinion of us and less interested in the opinions of others if we are growing in personal righteousness. So friends, the opposite is just as true. If you're becoming more lustful, if you're becoming more angry, if you're becoming more vengeful, then right this moment you may be on a slow drift away from God. Secondly, by growing in worship, Jesus honored the Father. He revered the Father. He worshiped the Father. And what is worship? Um, Nick defined it for us earlier, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. It is to offer our whole selves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. And Paul says, what is that? That is your spiritual worship. That is worship. To offer our entire selves, our whole selves. The, when, when in the Old Testament day, when the, the lamb or the goat or the sheep was sacrificed, that was a picture of worship. The giving of our heart, the giving of our entire selves to God. Today's surrender is tomorrow's freedom. Today's surrender is tomorrow's freedom. And when we worship, as Nick challenges to this morning, then we prevent, we check, we check that slow drift away from God. Thirdly, by becoming less attached to the need for what I call horizontal recognition and respect. That's recognition and respect going this way. When we get closer to God, we just find that we need it less. Is it still important? Yes. And at some human level, do we all need it? Absolutely. But the closer we become to Christ, the less supreme it becomes, the less obsessed we become about it. Galatians 1, 9 and 10, Paul said, um, after a challenge to the, that, that church, he says, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so the antithetical is true as well. If you are finding that more and more and more you are thinking about needing, wanting, demanding respect and recognition horizontally, it may be that you're on a slow drift away from God. Fourthly, Jesus had this very personal, very relational connection. It wasn't academic. It wasn't just right answers. It wasn't just rule keeping. It was this vital personal connection. And we prevent drift in our lives by an ever-increasing dependence on and thirst for God. Look at how David said it. Psalm 42, or listen to how David said it in Psalm 42, 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams. You picture that? As a deer pants for flowing streams. Up where we live, there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a vibrant and very alive deer population that feeds and lives off that Olentangy stream. As a deer pants for flowing stream, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? That's the kind of thirst that prevents a slow drift away from Him. And finding number five, Jesus said, I keep your word. 
And so we prevent drift by an ever increase by His Word living and His Word growing in us. 1 Peter 2, 2 says this, like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted the Lord is good. Long for it. By the way, this is how we, if you're thinking, man, I'm just not thirsty, I'm not really hungry for God, the way to cultivate it is by simply beginning to read with an open heart. And God will create that hunger. He will create that thirst in you. So how do we prevent a slow drift? How do we fight apathy? It is by following the example of Jesus. By growing in personal righteousness, by growing in worship, by becoming less attached to the need for horizontal affirmation, by desiring to be with God, and by applying His Word and letting it live and grow in you. Spurgeon, that great 19th century English preacher, said the Christian life is very much like climbing a hill of ice. (laughs) Sounds interesting, doesn't it? You cannot slide up. You cannot slide up. You have to cut every step with an ice axe. Only with incessant labor in cutting and chipping can you make any progress. If you want to know how to drift, leave off going forward. Cease going upward, and you will go downward with necessity. You never stand still. You never stand still. My daughter recently had a harrowing experience. It was really quite, quite frightening. And uh, she never had an experience like it, and we never have as well. It was one with some danger. She was backpacking, yes, my little daughter, about 110 pounds, not even that actually. Uh, She was backpacking in Yosemite, and an early snow got them moving a little quicker than they wanted to, to get down off the mountain. And to get off that mountain, they had to, in, in the snow, cross a glacier with very little footing on top of a precipitous drop if they slipped. You know, it's one of those drops when you look down and you just keep looking. (laughs) And uh, it was quite terrifying for her. And with each step, they had to find a way to hold on with their hands. And they took little baby steps all the way across that pathway to get over that glacier. But not for a moment in that snow could they stand still. Listen, with this topic... Let me be just very honest with you. So much is at stake here. So much is at stake. Drifting today, like we saw in the video, drifting today determines where you will end up tomorrow. Drifting today will determine where you land tomorrow. Or the next year, or the next decade. You know, when you talk about drifting, you have to ask the question then, how will you finish? How will you finish life? Will you finish strong? Will our race, will your race, will my race end with the exhilaration of a a race that has run well, a life well 
spent? Or will it be filled with, with agonizing regret? So much depends on stopping and preventing drift. Your legacy depends on it. Where you end up depends on it. And your ability to finish life in a strong way. You remember we've often quoted that verse from Genesis 25, how when Abraham died, before he died, it says Abraham was satisfied with his life. He was satisfied with his life. Didn't mean everything went well. Didn't mean he made mistakes. But in the end, he could look at his life. He finished strong. And he was satisfied with his life. That's, isn't that how you want to end your life? Jesus gives us a pathway on how to prevent spiritual drift so we can end that way. So much is at stake. So where do we find the motivation and where do we find the courage? Where do we find the motivation? Where do we find the courage? Let me just close by saying this. It's one thing to have the example of Jesus. That's great, isn't it? And again, Jesus, in his humanity, gives you and me an example of how we can relate to the Father. It's one of the beautiful things in the book of John. He is the ideal man. He is the perfect man. He is the second Adam. He was what Adam was supposed to be, what Adam should have been. And we can see in Christ how we can relate to the Father. But he was not only fully human, he was also fully God. It's one thing to have his example. It's an entirely different thing to have his life actually in us, living in us through his Holy Spirit. Though we are prone to wonder, and I have wondered, I've wondered a lot, a lot more than I'd like to admit, and I've strayed. Though we are prone to wonder, Jesus Christ lived his life perfectly, always in step with the Father. And because of his perfection, he was the only worthy substitute to exchange his resoluteness for our hesitancy, to exchange his unflinching compromise for our give and take with the world. Him, only him. And so we start again, we start anew, we have a change of heart and a change of mind and a change of direction. We start again, we start anew, only one way. By remembering that he bore in his body on the cross our compromises. He bore in his body on the cross our hesitancy, our wanderings, our compromises. And he washes even our deepest stains in order to make us clean. He gives us a new identity. He gives us a new nature, a new heart. That nature is in accord with the person that you were designed to be before sin created such chaos. Our service now, our service to Jesus now is inspired by the hope of a future resurrection. And in that future resurrection, we will actively serve a king that has enlisted our help to manage the galaxies and bring order to the universe. Oh no, heaven will not be boring. Heaven will be the most unbelievable, incredible place of active service and engagement that's beyond description.
That's the gospel, friends. That's the freedom that Jesus was talking about. That's the freedom that he's calling you to. Set free from our obsessions. Set free from our addictions. Set free from our lust. Set free from our anxieties. Set free from ourselves in order to love God and in order to love one another. That's why we worship him. Let me ask the band to come back up. Could you pull out the connect card for a moment? This morning, I'd like to have you respond in some way. There's many ways to respond. We'll respond with singing. You've heard the word of God now. You've heard the word of God. And just like the Jews in the audience, you have a chance to respond or a chance to resist and reject. You know, by the way, let me share one last thing. I don't remember the exact verse, but it's in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, there's this interesting debate going on in the early church. And it says that in the midst of this debate, one party got up to make their point. Now, unfortunately, it was the wrong point. <laughs> but, the point but what I'm saying is, is that they were in the discussion. In other words, they were believers in Jesus. They were in the church. They were growing and living in the church. The beliefs weren't all quite correct yet, but they were part of the church. You know who it was? What they were called there in Acts 15? They were called a party of the Pharisees. Now, I don't think we have to speculate too deeply to think that some of the, those individuals who had become believers in Jesus were in the audience here in John chapter 8. And in Jesus' harsh, stunning language, indeed did waken some of them up to see that they had lost what it meant to love God and to relate to God, and they became believers and followers of Jesus. So we too can be woken up. So we too can be awakened. And so I'd ask you on that Connect card this morning, uh, if there is a prayer request, or if there's a next step this morning that you would like us to be a part of, if there's a commitment this morning that you'd like to make, um, just write that down for us. And during this time of worship, um, feel free to do whatever God's calling you. If you want to kneel down, if you want to stand, if you want to raise your hands, if you want to um, go uh, encourage someone here in the room, if there's someone in the room that maybe you're not quite squared with, if you need to get that correct. Again, the way we respond to God in worship can look so many different ways. And so we would encourage you to pursue what God is placing on your heart, even in this moment. Maybe you need to go call somebody. Maybe there's somebody on your heart that you're not reconciled with, somebody on your, on your heart that you want to encourage. Maybe you need to go call them right now. Worship can look like so many different things as we respond to Him. But uh, we'll collect that card here during our offering. Let me pray for the offering right now as we move into a way to respond to Jesus and His Word to us today. Father, thank you for this story and thank you for the courage, Jesus, you had as you stood in the midst of that crowd and people yelling at you and making all sorts of accusations and um, calling you the worst horrible things. And you were only trying to be a witness to what was true, a witness to what it looked like and meant and felt like to relate to the God 
who creates us, to the God who loves us, to the God who put us on this earth, to the God who gives us the breath to breathe. We thank You, Father, for the courage and the perfection of Jesus and that that life is exchanged for ours. Thank You, Father, that His death wipes away the deepest stains in our hearts, the deepest, most troubling sins, most troubling compromises, the most troubling lusts that we have, the most troubling expressions of anger, the most troubling feeling of vengeance. That sacrifice of Jesus speaks to and addresses that stain in us. And you bore it on your body. You bore it on your body for us. We thank you for the cross. And Father, we come now before you and we bring to you, Lord, the things that, like Nick said earlier, the thing that we put our identity in, the things that we're, we, we live for, and we want to lay those down at your feet this morning. Through Christ we pray.